Hi, and welcome to Being Lutheran, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the biblical theology expressed in the Lutheran Confessions. Today, Pastor Jason Goodham and Pastor Brett Bow talk about the Nicene Creed and its importance to the church. Welcome to Being Lutheran. I am Pastor Brett Bow, and I have with me today... Pastor Jason Goodham. Good to see you again, Brett. Yes, you as well, Jason. It's it's good to uh, talk about these creeds. And, you know, thinking about this, uh, why is why do we have more than one creed? Uh, we have uh, the Apostles' Creed. Isn't that sufficient? Uh, why do we have need for more? The Apostles' Creed is sufficient, Okay, but we also have a different focus. Sure. Uh, you remember a, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that the heretics write the theology of the church uh, in that they force us to clarify what we believe in the face of error. And while the Apostles' Creed might be addressing the error of Gnosticism, and I think does a really fine job of doing so, right. uh, it doesn't have the same focus as the other two creeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so uh, the Apostles' Creed, we consider it to be the first of the three ecumenical creeds. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the Nicene Creed, uh, which is the second of the three. And so I, I think as we dive into that today, let's talk a little bit about the history of the Nicene Creed. Yeah, your first unique part of the Nicene Creed is that the Nicene Creed ends up being the first confession the church produces in the Christian world. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until... Uh, the beginning of the fourth century, you have Christianity on the fringes of society growing, certainly, but more so viewed as an anomaly or even a threat. Uh, much of the close of the New Testament, especially Revelation right. and some of the later books, is talking about the developing Christian persecution. And, you know, it's likely that some of the passages uh, of the New Testament are written under Nero when Nero is the leader of the Western world as the Roman emperor. And, and Nero is the first guy who really gets after persecuting Christians. You have this, this you know, urban legend or, or actuality right. that he's using Christians to light garden parties uh, at the palace. Like a tiki, tiki torch. Yeah, a Christian torch, right? He would tar them, light them on fire while they were alive, and then suspend them in the air yeah. to light his guys. It's just awful stuff. Uh, and from then, the emperor is more or less continued suit. There would be times of uh, rest for Christians, but there would be also times of systematic persecution. And also during this time, as we saw in Paul's missionary journeys in Acts, not only is there official persecution, but the Jews are becoming less and less friends of the Christians as the Christians kind of uh, identify themselves as more than just another Jewish sect. And so Mm -hmm. as, as history progressed, uh, you have the Emperor Diocletian yeah. at the end of the third century, uh, who really had perhaps the most intense persecution of all Christians. It was one last ditch effort as, uh, from history looking back to rid the world of Christianity, and it didn't work. Right. Yeah. And so, despite uh, how the devil is working in the world uh, to stamp out Christianity, uh, the Lord blessed the the church, and it it thrived uh, through that. And and so uh, at that time came a, a huge figure in church history, and that's of Constantine. Yeah, your first Christian emperor, Constantine, uh, normalized Christianity. He uh, again, history has it that he was converted to Christianity as he invaded Rome. 
and he was uh, convinced in a dream that he was to conquer in the name of Christ. Uh, and then he established Christianity as the state religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, uh, you know, more a bit of notoriety or infamy, he moves the capital of the empire from Rome to mm-hmm. Constantinople. Nice to name a city after yourself, if you can. Always fun. Jasonople. No. Yeah, Jasonople. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, not quite, but uh, this both helps and hurts right. the cause of Christianity. So it's kind of like a, a mixed review of, of this uh, in terms of, of how it affects Christianity. Yeah, uh, from, from a positive standpoint, first of all, Christians uh, are free to think and minister and evangelize without fear of consequence. Uh, and, and this is helpful. We, we get some of our, our richest early theology uh, from the Constantinian period of church history as as writers are out there uh, engaging people instead of, you know, underground sort of movements. Uh, Christianity is more or less headquartered in the eastern part of the environment. You know, in Acts, it was headquartered in Jerusalem. And then you have the uh, the Asian peninsula there in Turkey mm-hmm. and also Egypt were hubs of Christianity, and this moves it closer uh, to those hubs. But uh, at the same time, Christian, Christianity always suffers when it's normalized, when it's made an right. official religion. And so we start to see uh, a decline uh, of Christian living, uh, things like that. And uh, you start to have real heresy creeping into the church. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think that that's... That hasn't changed throughout the years. In different places and different parts of the world, that sort of thing has happened. And so uh, in the context of all of that, uh, we have uh, a new enemy that comes to the fore uh, for Christianity. Yeah, where whereas Gnosticism was uh, kind of a, a faceless, directionless enemy of the church, uh, we have real heretics showing up, real false teachers with real movements. And, and a major one in Christian history uh, is this guy named Arius. Right. Uh, he lived during the second half of the third century and well into the fourth century. Uh, the, the dates were roughly given, depending mm-hmm. on which history you're using, 250 to 336. He was a pastor mm-hmm. in Alexandria, not Minnesota, right. but Egypt, uh, <laughs> which is on the northern coast of Egypt. Alexandria was known as a center of learning and knowledge. Right, the uh, library. The great library yeah. of Alexandria, which burned to the ground and took with it so much works of ancient literature. And they were known for their giant lighthouse because they're a port mm-hmm. city uh, on uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Right. Uh, and so Arius served as a pastor in Alexandria. Uh, he was known as being an effective communicator and yeah. an effective teacher. Yeah, I find that really fascinating, and and he used different ways to get his message out there, uh, including writing songs. Yeah, and uh, that's that's a wonderful way to get your message out. Uh, people start singing the song. Yeah, people start singing it. it. The tune and the words become familiar to us even before we unpack the content. And on a positive side of things, this is kind of the benefit of singing hymns in church. Uh, because many of the great hymns of the church communicate the faith to us in, in ways that we don't absorb mm-hmm. during a sermon or a Bible study or a lecture. And, and Arius used this as a tool to spread his false teaching. That right. uh, he was, uh, it's so interesting to me because I think as we look back on history, uh, the heretics are the bad guys, 
and the the saints that are the heroes of the faith are the good guys and and at least from my perspective i i often think of these heretics as kind of these nefarious right belligerent jerks you know the you know the kind of the looney tunes yeah, with the slick back hair and the handlebar mustache and the and the ugly cape and stuff like that and that's not who arius was at all sure so he maybe would have been a, a well-liked uh like if you were to plop him in Minneapolis here, he would probably be well liked. He, he likely would have been popular. He would have been adored by the members of his congregation. And uh, what's so unfortunate about the person of Arius then is that he used his popularity and his, his charisma uh, as an avenue to spread false teaching. And his big thing right. uh, when it came down to it is that he concluded that Jesus Christ has a different nature than God that Jesus Christ is not true God, that he is the highest created being. Yeah, and so uh, we're getting right to the heart of the false teaching here. It has to do with uh, the view of Christ uh, from Arius. And, uh, you know, Jason, as I think about this, um, you know, talking about the Trinity, it's an interesting discussion to have. I know as a pastor, I've had people ask me about the Trinity and you know, giving the the textbook answer, I still see people with kind of a glazed over yeah. look in their eye. So it's it's understandable how uh, uh, just a real confusion about the Trinity could come in and uh, destroy the faith in, in a bit. So how has that gone for you as a pastor in, in talking about the Trinity? I see the same thing. You know, we we talked about at the very first episode about the the rejection of doctrine as either uninteresting or hard to understand and, and divisive. And this is one of the byproducts of sinful human nature. You and I and everyone else are lazy. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to exercise our minds if we don't have to. And, and, and the danger of this is it allows a heresy like Arianism uh, to uh, per- perpetuate itself. It, it, it goes because Arius taught the son has a beginning, that Jesus mm-hmm. started, uh, was created, uh, on the other hand, we teach the Trinity, you, you have this notion that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but there is only one God, right. and they are all three God, and so on and so forth. And sooner or later, it feels like your brain's about to explode. Mm-hmm. The other uh, problem from a human perspective with the Trinity is that there is no verse that says, here's the Trinity. Right. Uh, it's it's a teaching of the church that is compiled Right. from Scripture from without having a definitive statement in Scripture. Yeah, and so you need to do a little more work there to pull it all together to show that. Um, so this idea of the Trinity, it's it's offensive to a lot of people. And uh, as we talk about this, thinking of Jews, Muslims, um, yeah, even Jehovah's Witnesses, yep. uh, it's, it's an offensive teaching, and yet it is a thoroughly biblical uh, teaching. And so... Uh, this is brewing at this time here with uh, Arius coming on the scene. And uh, so there's a, a famous gathering of, of leaders, and uh, that's the Council of Nicaea. Is it Nicaea? Or... <laughs> I go with Nicaea. Okay, yeah, uh, good. <laughs> I think I've heard different ways of saying that. But uh, tell, tell us about the Council of Nicaea. So after Arianism spreads uh, and it starts to alarm some other teachers in the Roman Empire and the Christian Empire now, uh, they uh, hold this council. And, and what led up to this is eventually as Arius grew in popularity, he was condemned by the bishop in Alexandria. His boss mm-hmm. condemned him, uh, but he was backed by a different bishop, a man by the name of Eusebius, who was bishop of a town called Nicomedia, which doesn't exist 
anymore. Uh, and so mm-hmm. with all of this division, it was actually Con- Constantine who called for unity in the church. And it was a purely political move mm-hmm. for doing this. He, right. he wanted to see unity uh, in the empire maintained. So he forced the pastors of the day to get together. Uh, the, the issue at the Council of Nicaea that was debated is the substance of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Is he uh, other than God or sure. is he similar to God? Uh, and, and over the course of this council, this theological conference then, at the end of it, only two of the 318 bishops who were in attendance sided with Arius. It was wow. a resounding defeat of heresy, a resounding victory for Orthodox theology. Hmm. And so the the just to summarize the kind of the two um, arguments there it's a little bit of a Greek lesson for us yep. today. Um, uh, homo usius, one substance. Yep. And homo was, usius, yep. and then if you just add an i to that end of that first word homo, you get homoi. Homoi. Usius yeah. is a similar substance. Right. And so it's uh, you know if you study mythology, it's like the difference between a god and a demigod mm-hmm. kind of a thing is how it ends up looking on paper. Uh, and that's where uh, the, the the battle was. And mm-hmm. in the end, Scripture carried the day. Right. Uh, so praise God for that. And like you said, it was a resounding victory. Yeah, only two of them, uh, two of the bishops uh, that sided with Arius. Um, so what was uh, the after effect of that? It, where, was everything okay after that? Um, did everything uh, calm down? Uh, no. Uh, Arianism continued well into the 5th century, and it was being more fought on the fringes of the empire at that time. Again, remember, Arius was this tremendously popular individual. His theology was put to music. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what that ended up then is that the church put together a statement of belief on the Trinity, and and that's been handed down to us today as the Nicene Creed. Right, and and so that's what we have. Uh, That's what we have now um, even to this day, uh, what we have in the in the Nicene Creed, and so we confess the Nicene Creed, and uh, for many churches, I imagine once a month, I suppose, um, or somewhere around there, uh, being a little bit longer than the Apostles' Creed. Um, I know at our church we we uh, confess that on Communion Sundays, which is once a month at our church, um, and so um, yeah, the Nicene Creed is a wonderful creed, and so it's a it's a great thing to say together. Um, in that way. Yeah, we at Faith here confess the Nicene Creed every communion Sunday. We have communion on the first and third Sundays of every month, so we're doing it twice a month. Uh, but the the one thing, without getting too detailed into the Nicene Creed, uh, the, the, the Nicene Creed delivers to us is that it is not a refutation of heresy. Uh, the main principle that the Nicene Creed teaches us mm-hmm. is that we stand for something and right. not against something. And so uh, even as we've been talking about Arius and the problem of Arianism and the, the Trinitarian heresy yep. that it was, uh, the the product of all these bishops getting together and arguing and in, in, in laying boundaries from Scripture for our belief system is we have a statement of orthodoxy mm-hmm. and not a statement of anti-heresy. Right. And that's so important. And that's uh, that's the the thing that uh, we need to be holding on to is that uh, we we stand on the truths of Scripture in a positive way, and uh, what a joy it is to do that together. Yeah. So if we look at the the content of the creed, then and, and we've just got a short amount of time, and much of the Nicene Creed parallels mm-hmm. 
the Apostles' Creed. We don't have to unpack the first article, and we don't have to unpack the third article, right. uh, mere images. But there is a key phrase in the middle of the second article about Jesus Christ that that uh, warrants uh, some closer yeah. examination. So the, the, the phrases we're looking at, it starts with, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And you can go down that list almost comma by comma or semicolon by semicolon and find the impact of orthodoxy as it is stated for belief in the Trinity and belief in the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and I appreciate how it it's so thorough there mm-hmm. of laying it all out for us, um, the, the divinity of, of Christ. Yeah, and uh, so we look at one Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, the, the first announcement is that Jesus Christ received worship. This is important for us to understand because the Christian church throughout all the ages uh, confesses that there's only one true God. And if there's only one true God, he doesn't share the stage with any other gods. He's not an option among many. He is exclusive. And yet Jesus Christ receives worship in scriptures. Uh, We remember Thomas in Mm -hmm. John 20 saying, my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't say, whoa, wait, wait. Yeah. He said, you know, this is your confession, and blessed are those who believe this and confess this who do not see the evidence like Thomas did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The second phrase that we look at, the only begotten Son of God, uh, the the confession here for us, the, the teaching here for us is that begotten does not imply created. Begotten speaks of a relationship. Begotten speaks of an inheritance. Mm-hmm. It does not mean that he was created, that he was yeah. formed. Yeah, thank you for saying that. That's very, very good. I know, yeah, you're right. That word begotten does kind of make it seem like it, he was uh, born in a sense, yep. in, uh, or had a beginning, I should say. Yeah, that's the difference. Yeah. He, was born, he was born, he was begotten, right. but he didn't have a beginning. It's, right. it's, it's a completely, almost a legal title. Mm-hmm. That, that talks about Christ's inheritance. Mm-hmm. And, and he is the inheritance of all creation uh, from the Father. Right. From, from all eternity. From all right. eternity. Yeah, Christ yeah. is eternal, thinking of that. Wow, that, that's, uh, that's mind-blowing. And that's the third phrase, begotten of his Father before all worlds. Christ is eternal. He can't be a created being if he is eternal. If he was there when the beginning began, he isn't created. Yeah, and so then we have this string of... I love I love this part. Uh, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. It it almost has a poetical it, it, ring to it. And, and the the beauty and artistry of our confession. It's not again. It's not merely an information dump. Right. It, it, it's it's intended to be beautiful. It's also intended to be memorable. I, I would guess that many of us, if we don't have the Nicene Creed memorized word for word, would recognize that string. Uh, of phrases uh, more easily than any other part. God of God, light of light, very mm-hmm. God of very God. It just rolls off the tongue. Right. It, it works in our thought process. And again, emphasizing that Jesus is God. This is drawing theology from John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning mm-hmm. was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the yep. Word was God. Right. It's drawing from John 8.58, where Jesus says, before Abraham was I am, and he's not, you know, using incorrect grammar when he says that. He's saying God's name. Right. That the the English translation of Yahweh is I am, or I will be who I will be. Uh, it pulls in the theology of Colossians chapter one, which talks about Jesus Christ being the image of the invisible God. 
Uh, and so we go on from there. Jesus is begotten, not made. We've covered that. Being of one substance with the Father. That's right. the battleground that's of the, the Council of Nicaea yep. put into confession form. Right, and and that's that's the clear, rock-solid statement that they are making uh, here and uh, and standing upon it based on, on Scripture. Yep, and then the, the, this whole beginning portion of the second article of the Nicene Creed wraps up with, by whom all things were made. And this turns the head on Arianism, it turns the head on any anti-Trinitarian heresy, because Jesus, not a creation, but he is also creator. Mm-hmm. That it was God is the creator and he created through Jesus Christ. That Jesus is there present with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1.1. And he is responsible for creation. He's responsible for sustaining creation. And he is therefore not a part of creation. Amen. And that is the Nicene Creed. Nicene Creed in 20 minutes or less. All right. Uh, Do you have any closing thoughts for us today, Jason? I I don't think I could even possibly do it. I'm out of breath. All right. Thank you very much. Well, we'll see you next time. Hi, and thank you for joining us on Being Lutheran. You can find us on the web at beinglutheran.com. Please tune in next time when Pastor Jason and Pastor Brett talk about the Athanasian Creed.